Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 19th, 2017. The share ID for Friday, February 17th, is 9609. That's 9609. Today, A Vision for You presents The Vicious Cycle. The big book's approach to step one is what Dr. William Silkworth, the doctor who wrote the two letters found in the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Put simply, we have an allergy of the body, which means that once we start eating certain kinds of foods, we develop cravings which overpower us. And we have a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us that we can safely return to eating those foods once again. Thus, we can't stop once we start due to the allergy that creates the cravings, and we can't stop from starting again due to the obsession that sends us back. We are thus in a vicious cycle. The vicious cycle, it begins when we are restless, irritable, and discontent, which leads to the obsession for an effect to numb those feelings, which leads to the first bite, which starts the phenomenon of craving, which leads to the binge, which then leads to the guilt and remorse, which leads to the firm resolution that we won't do that again until the feelings of restlessness, irritability, and discontentment return, and the whole vicious cycle starts again. Today, seven recovered compulsive overeaters thread their personal experience together with the text from the doctor's opinion. The passage we are concentrating on can be found in the doctor's opinion, page XXVIII, the last paragraph. And it reads as follows. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as many, so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. Bringing to life this passage, 
again, seven recovered compulsive overeaters. And let's get started with panelist one, who will focus on the very first sentence. And our panelist is Reva P. from Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Reva. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's an honor to be here. My name is Reva P., grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater in Toronto. I'm going to share on the first sentence. I'm going to share about my experience, strength, and hope of what that sentence um, means to me. So men and women drink. Um, You know, the word drink. um, Alcoholics drink. They drink water. They drink coffee. They drink tea. Um, But what is it referring to here? It's referring to liquor. And what did I um, use food for? I ate but the foods that did for me that I don't think they do for other people um, were specific, specific foods, specific ingredients, um, and specific um, eating behaviors that did for me something that they don't do for the normal eater. And what was that? Well, my career in compulsive overeating included two ends of the spectrum. Um, I was extremely anorexic, and um, I don't know exact weights because I always played games with the scale, but I was at least 10, 20 pounds or more less than I am now. Um, and at some point, I couldn't do that anymore, so I became bulimic, um, and I was 30 or 40 pounds heavier than I am now. But what was my vicious cycle? My vicious cycle was waking up every morning telling myself today was going to be different. I was going to roll up my sleeves and control this thing. Um, And I basically counted calories and tried to starve myself all day. Um, And then I would come home, close the door, and binge uncontrollably thousands and thousands and thousands of calories in as quick a time as possible. Um, And I abused laxatives, and I threw up. Um, And I did anything and everything I could think of with all my intelligence to control. And my whole um, mission in life was to get this little problem under control because I thought everything else in my life was absolutely fine and food was the problem. But food was the solution. And this sentence shows me essentially means it was necessary, it was absolutely necessary, it was compulsory, it was vital to my existence that I do these behaviors and indulge in this kind of conduct because why? I liked the effect. I needed the effect. I needed that result, that outcome. And that outcome was I did not have to feel because I couldn't handle the normal human emotion. It felt like all my emotions were totally exaggerated. Um, And I remember when I first got abstinent and I started feeling, it was incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, I couldn't handle fear, resentment. I, I basically did not have the skills for living. And my disease really skyrocketed in my teenage years. Um, and I lost a whole chunk of my life as a result. Um, And I repeated the same cycle every single day, um, not knowing um, that there was a name for this, not knowing that there was a solution for this. Um, 
but I needed that effect. I just needed my fix. I would shoot up on um, mainly sugar and carbs um, until I would totally numb out. And it was oblivion. And for the first few seconds, you know what? It was nice. Um, But the effects um, started becoming more and more harmful and my life started deteriorating all around me in all areas um, faster than I could keep up. And what happened was um, I got very sick, ended up in the hospital, and um, the doctor who came to see me Um, this is just the grace of God, gave me two options. Um, One was the eating disorders clinic at the hospital, and the other one was a yellow hokey piece of paper with the name Overeaters Anonymous on it and a phone number. And I thought, that doesn't sound very um, research-oriented. It sounds pretty hokey. I think I'm going to go for the research program. But God again took care of me because there was a huge waiting list and I couldn't get in right away. So I made the phone call and started my first meeting. And I am grateful to say um, I came in program several, many years ago in my 20s and we didn't count abstinence as uh, precisely as people seem to do right now. So I have been abstinent six months to a year after I came into program. I know I was abstinent. Um, And I don't do this cycle anymore. Um, And now I still need the effect. You know, once food is down and I'm not triggering the allergy that compels me to eat more, um, I need a solution for how to deal with my emotions and how to deal with my anger and my fears. And I've got lots of fears. And the solution that has worked for me is to start off by putting the foods down that trigger the allergy and working the steps. And I am amazed. Um, I I didn't know what I didn't know. I thought I was living, but I was really a walking dead person. And I was in a food fog. I'm amazed how much detail Bill is able to recount in his story Um, For me, my life when I was in the food was one big fog and haze, um, and I can't remember everything very clearly, even to this day. But what I do remember is lying on the kitchen floor alone in my apartment, crying as I'm eating, not eating because I like the taste, eating because I need the effect. I needed the effect, and it took more and more substance over time to get that effect Um, and that's what I remember, uncontrollable, Jekyll and Hyde. It was my biggest secret. Um, Nobody knew what I was doing. Until my life fell apart, I would have just kept on doing it till I physically killed myself. Um, So I am so grateful that I have had a life that's not only free of the crazy behaviors with food that's not only about having the same body size for many, many years, but I have had a life that I never knew was even possible. Um, I always share that I got married um, in abstinence and in program. I was abstinent at my wedding. I sat down for the time it took, ordered my meal, and uh, 
I was probably the only bride I knew of who sat there and finished the whole meal instead of running around and greeting everybody at their tables. I've had two children and two pregnancies in abstinence um, and had to go through all the changes in body and hormones that that involved. Um, And I can't tell you exactly how I did it because I really didn't do it. All I do is I keep my nose to the grindstone, work the steps, and I cannot stagnate. There is no uh, maintenance plan in this program. Either I continue to move ahead or I go backwards. And all I've got, and I need to remember it every day, is a daily reprieve contingent on my spiritual condition. There is no insurance policy. It doesn't matter how many years, how many hours, how many days. It's a daily reprieve. As long as I do today what I've done all the yesterdays, and as long as I keep staying close to my higher power by removing blocks, um, by accessing guidance, um, accessing power that I could never, ever have on my own will um, or self-knowledge. As long as I do that, I have daily reprieves and my life is wonderful. And it doesn't mean that everything on the outside is amazing. It means that I'm okay on the inside. And no matter what happens, no matter what happens, because some yucky things have happened too, um, I know I can get through. I never got through anything. I escaped through the binging and the food. I, I needed an escape. I needed to run away. Life was just too much. And I don't have to escape now. Um, and that's just a miracle. And I'm close to my 10 minutes, so with that, I will pass. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Reva P. And panelist number two, Rachel W. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for all your service and everything else you do. And I I also want to thank you so much for the times that you mentioned on the line that the chains of this disease are too soft to be felt until they're too hard and painful to be broken. And that's the perfect analogy of the sentence I'll be focusing on this morning. We're in the doctor's opinion, page XXVIII. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. And when I first walked into this program about 18 years ago, I was 40 pounds overweight. Got a sponsor to the three-step waltz, that infamous waltz, up to step four and binged. And this sentence is describing the vicious cycle that played out for so many years. And because I was always chasing that sensation. And finally, a relapse left me at 265 pounds. I was about 100 pounds overweight from my five foot nine inch frame. And I thought food was my problem. In reality, I was carrying at least 100 pounds of denial. I was not able to, not only was I not able to tell the truth from the false, I didn't even really want to know what the truth was. And I didn't want to acknowledge this hole in me that was like a gaping void. And all I wanted in every pursuit was to escape feeling it through trying to recreate some moment in the past where food helped me check out. And I don't even know if I really ever truly felt that elusive sensation. Um, That sensation, if I ever had it, was so fleeting. But the chasing, the running, even in my calmest moments, it was always this internal tsunami that was desperate for escape. And I existed for that chase, that elusive sensation. And there were times, I think, that the chase was more addicting than the substance itself. But you know, other people might enjoy food, but they're not looking for that sensation of a desperation to escape reality, just to check out, to be somewhere else, anywhere but in my own skin. They're not using the food, the same foods that way. And, you know, so I thought my problem was simply I like to eat, I love the taste of food, but the fact is I could never, ever get enough. And I remember in my last relapse, I was so frustrated because 
food was not giving me that elusive sensation anymore. It wasn't working. And I was, I've mentioned before, but I was almost up to intravenous Reese's. Um, I was driven mad uh, to the point of insanity. My, I was desperate to get my binge foods. And for me, the chaos was just another part of the addiction, another high. I didn't want to see the reality of how this food was killing me. I would binge, go to my doctor to receive insulin shots for gestational diabetes, and then I would stop at the bakery on the way home. It didn't matter that I spent hours with the podiatrist for orthotics to treat the heel spurs that grew because I was carrying too much weight to my feet. None of that mattered. You know, I couldn't differentiate the truth from the false. I found the most delicious cinnamon buns ever, and I used to buy them every week, just a few. And then I needed more the next week to get that same effect. So I bought more as the weeks went on, and then it became a science to be able to tell which ones were fresher. And I, I, I could stand like six feet away and determine the freshness of a cinnamon bun. I became an expert. And I researched the day that they, they came, the day and time that they would have their cinnamon bun delivery, and my, I timed my entire week around that bakery visit. That is called chasing an elusive sensation. Um, you know, being an addict involves an incredible amount of creativity, and I think for me it was involved in the chase. And I was kind of like Bill W., where on page two he's explaining to Lois that men of great genius conceive their best projects when drunk. I used to be up late writing, and I knew that the success of my articles were in direct tandem to how many rappers surrounded me and the amount of crumbs piling up on my keyboard. And I remember explaining all of this to my sponsor, the same way that Bill explained this, this reality to Lois. And um, instead of telling me I was crazy, she said, well, why don't you take your fruit from dinner and commit it later in the evening? And her simple advice saved me. And since then, I've learned how vital it is to take the drama out of this disease. But when she first told me that I had to stop, you know, chasing the elusive sensation that I had to put the food down, I was a woman in my 30s with a great husband, beautiful children, great friends, community career. I, I cried like a baby. I was suffering that alcoholic torture. And I told her, I, I felt like she was telling me to remove an oxygen mask. And because food was my response to life, it not only helped me mis- like escape everything, it helped me to be creative and it made me a better wife and mother. And I thought, you know, it made me an excellent codependent and people pleaser. You know, putting the food down meant I would have to finally face those things I was running away from. And um, ending that chase for the elusive sensation meant I would have to finally take responsibility for who I was. It meant I would have to finally confront myself face to face, and that scared the hell out of me. So I cried, <laughs> but I committed the fruit, and I cleaned out my keyboard and threw wrappers in the trash, and I sat, and I wrote, and I thought of food, and I wrote some more, and I ate my fruit, and I wrote, and I was fine. And the next day, um, later on in the day, my editors contacted me, and they said, like, what happened? Because the piece I wrote blew them away. I put down the food and my writing had gone nuclear. The thought of food creating, like fueling my creativity, it was false. And um, in this moment, I came to realize two fundamental things. The first is that within each of us, there are divine gifts and talents and a vibrancy that flows through all of us. And when I turn to the food or another substance or person to escape, I block those gifts. And I imagine myself like a tree reaching upwards toward the sunlight and sky, and my addiction is the vine of the tree that sucks the life out of me. So my decision to go down the food was like peeling away that vine and allowing God and life and my ultimate purpose to flow in. I had never seen it so clearly before, um, you know, what could happen and how creativity could flow in even more when I put down the food. And the second thing I learned was that left unchecked, my reality is sorely skewed. I need help with it. Um, the things I'm chasing, those things I'm feeding life into, they've got to be God-centered. They've got to be God-focused or they have the potential to destroy me. And 
I became absent, even in abstinence, I was still chasing elusive sensations because I, I was being brought to the steps so slowly. It was such a slow, she was like, I think that was part of the problem with my sponsor was just very slow with the steps. But I remember committing a vodka and orange juice to my sponsor as a fruit. And she asked me about the vodka and I said, oh, I just, you know, figured it was free. You know, it's clear. It's like water, you know. And she laughed and we said, oh, yeah, and doesn't it sound wonderful to have a sponsor like that? Well, you know, sponsorship like that almost killed me. And ultimately, that person left the program. So it's interesting because over the years, I've watched my sponsors go from people like that um, who would join me in denial to my current sponsor who holds nothing back when it comes to reality. So now I see that my ability to differentiate the truth from the false stems from how honest I choose to be with myself and others. And this is a program of perfect perseverance. We cannot be afraid of the truth and thankfully don't have to be because we don't do this alone. I think the last count I heard on the line was that there's 3,500 vision for you members. That's 3,500 individuals who want this gift of recovery. So today I monitor my actions and feelings. I reach out. I no longer run away from myself. Um, Bill is doing me such a favor for me, you know, to, to, by noting this elusive sensation. The key to freedom is understanding this sentence. It's part of the delusion the big book talks about on page 30 that the first part of recovery is to smash delusions. And it wasn't until I continued with the rest of the steps that I learned about the chase and what it was all about and that an entire psychic change and daily commitment to enlarging my spiritual base would be the solution. Being recovered doesn't mean that I'm always comfortable. You know, it doesn't mean that life is no longer ever unmanageable and there are no longer any reasons to want to escape. It just means that I have a different response to life. Each day there's work to do. Um, and new ways to grow and connect with God and others. You know, I saw a sign recently that says life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Um, nature doesn't fight agitation. You know, nature accepts it as a sign for change. And I like the analogy of a lobster, and I use it often. It's that fleshy creature inside of a hard shell, and it's growing in there. When it gets too large for its shell, it feels the agitation. It doesn't say, wow, this is really uncomfortable. I, I need to get out my Dunkin' Donuts app and chase that elusive sensation. And typically speaking, it's not going to say that. It's not going to escape its reality um, unless it's suicidal and I'll go to Red Lobster, but that's a different story. But a lobster is not going to chase, try to escape its reality. It simply uses the pain as an alert that it's time to change. And it goes behind some rocks in a dark area and the shell breaks off and it grows into a new one. And I'm just ending off here um, just to say that I know that when I want to chase an elusive sensation, when I start struggling with the truth and the false, I pick up the steps, all 12 of them, again and again, realigning myself with God, calling my fellows and reading recovery literature. And I just wanted to end off with this meditation from Alcoholics Anonymous 24 Hours a Day book. He says, after I became an alcoholic, alcohol poisoned my love for family and friends. It poisoned my ambition. It poisoned my self-respect. It poisoned my whole life until I met AA. My life is happier now than it has been for a long time. I don't want to commit suicide. So with the help of God and AA, I'm not going to take any more of that alcoholic poison into my system. And I'm going to keep training my mind never to think of liquor again in any way except as a poison. Do I believe that liquor will poison my life if I ever touch it again? The meditation for today, I will link up my frail nature with a limitless divine power. I will link my life with the divine force for good in the world. The passionate appeal gains the divine attention, but it doesn't quite match the quiet placing of the difficulty and worry into the divine hands. So I will trust God like a child who places its tangled skein of wool in the hands of a loving parent to unravel. We please God by our unquestioning confidence, perhaps more so than by imploring him for help. The prayer for today, I pray that I may put all my difficulties into God's hands and leave them there. 
I pray that I may fully trust God to take care of them. I thank you for allowing me to share, and I pass. Thank you, Rachel W. And panelist number three, Cliff C. from Texas. Cliff, star one to unmute. All right. Thank you very much, uh, everyone, and uh, vision for you. My name is Cliff. I am a uh, recovered compulsive overeater, and uh, to them, their alcoholic life seems uh, the only normal one. Um, you know, when I when I took take a look at this, I mean, I, I realized that when I came into this program, I I weighed 385 pounds. I had been doing um, long distance endurance events. I had been doing uh, uh, marathons, triathlons, uh, century rides, and uh, it was just another extreme of trying to to do self will and trying to uh, figure out how to to lose weight. And uh, you know, and that's just part of the alcoholic life. I mean, it, it really seemed like you know being out there with people who were also doing going to an extreme was seemed very normal to me. Um, it was interesting because you know I was raised in the catering business, and in the catering business, uh, you know, everyone went through the line and everyone came out sick. And it was always all you could eat. It was always fast and furious, and uh, and and you know, so it was it was bottomless. And that for me, I just kept doing that over and over and over again. Um, I came to OA with my mother uh, in 1972 uh, when I was about uh, 19 years old. And they had the orange cards and gray card food plans and things like that. Neither one of us got it. She died in 1979. And, uh, and I didn't feel like I belonged there. So I went off on a 35-year binge, a 35-year vicious cycle uh, with intermittent self-control efforts of the pay and weight programs and physical fitness spurts and uh, and then of April 1st in uh, 2007, which I thought was perfectly appropriate because it was April Fool's Day, uh, God tricked me into coming into uh, an OA room. And I really had tried to find something that uh, would not work or would not be available. I looked for a day when there wouldn't be a meeting and I could at least say that I had tried uh, because that's still part of the alcoholic life. I got credit, even if I just thought about doing something. And uh, but then God went ahead, and and he uh, uh, he shared, you know, people and the 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 steps and what have you. But you know, but I still I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. I couldn't read a page in the big book. I couldn't read a paragraph in the big book. I couldn't read a sentence in the big book. Uh, I was so, uh, I was so dead. And, uh, you know, for me, it's sort of interesting because I thought that, you know, the, the addict, the, the, you know, most people are afraid of death 
but uh, or many people are afraid of death. But the to me, uh, the addict is afraid of life. I mean, it's almost seeking death. You know, uh, I remember one time that I would go off, you know, and I'm going to start my diet tomorrow, and I'm going to do this over again, and uh, uh, feeling so sick that I thought I had basically committed suicide. So I wrote a suicide letter to my to my uh, wife and apologized for everything. And then again, I woke up the next morning and I forgot. And, uh, and, and I just continued in that type of, of behavior. Um, the, um, um, I'm trying to look at my timer at the same time and that's not helping, but, uh, anyway, um, you know, the uh, I remember times that uh, that I went and I had I wasn't a golfer, but I had a pair of golf shoes. And so, what did I use those golf shoes for? I used them to walk in an ice storm to get my fix. I remember once when uh, leaving my one-year-old child at home alone so that I could go and get my fix. I remember dropping my family off on vacation. So I could leave while a tornado was uh, warning to go and get my fix. And the place that I went to uh, the next day, it was on the on the front page of the newspaper. It had been destroyed. So um, you know that was my alcoholic life. You know everything was in shambles. Um, I, I came to this program, and I really had no hope. Uh, I kept coming back, um, you know, I, I kept looking around and trying to find different, uh, uh, ways to, to approach this. I felt so much better when I got clean, but I, but I've told people that for me, for, for, you know, I wasn't struck abstinent, uh, but I spent two and a half years telling my sponsor, you know, I said, you, you call it surrender. I call it a diet. It's just a diet to me. And the funny thing was it was in the first 16 months that God removed 190 pounds, you know, without surgery, without pills, and even without exercise. And, um, uh, it took another, uh, 15, 16 months before I had that psychic experience, before God, you know, showed me what uh, uh, what He could do, and now it's been, you know, God willing, one day at a time. Uh, in April will be ten years of, of abstinence and and growth, and I so look forward to every day. Uh, it's just one day at a time. Um, you know, that, uh, uh, that I don't have to continue being, uh, you know, continue living that alcoholic life. I don't ever want to go back. I, I liken the, the, um, you know, sometimes I think of, of, uh, there was, a, there was a movie called Charlie with, uh, uh, Cliff Robertson and he what played someone who was, uh, mentally retarded and they found a medicine, they gave it to him, and he got a normal life back and actually became very debonair and, and had a wonderful life. But then uh, at some point, the half-life of the, um, 
of that medication wore off and they, they couldn't find anything to replace it. And he reverted to that. And in a way, I feel it's the same way in program, because what happens is, is that uh, for me, uh, I go to meetings, I, I make phone calls, uh, I read the literature, and all of those things are my daily reprieve. Um, when I get to hear somebody and, and what, you know, hopefully they are, are in recovery, and, uh, but even if not, even if not, they are, they are still a reminder that, that I could go back, um, you know, that, that there are no guarantees. And, and God has done so much for me that I could not do for myself. You know, when I was, when I was leading the alcoholic life, I, I had no life. I, I was just running from, from, you know, sugar fix to sugar fix to sugar fix. Um, I, um, there have been so many things that God has done, but most recently, and actually yesterday, my, uh, uh, celebrated, uh, my brother received a live kidney a year ago yesterday and, uh, from a donor, an unknown donor, unrelated, uh, he didn't have any chance. Uh, I couldn't donate and, uh, uh, you know, it was not that I couldn't, it's just that the transplant hospital wouldn't allow it. And, and what happened was that, uh, we were checking out another hospital for him in another city. And my sister had written on the back of the car, you know, my brother needs a kidney, uh, and a phone number. And she, uh, they pulled into a gas station and a woman came out, she saw the sign and she said, I'd like to help. And she was a perfect match. And, uh, you know, that wouldn't have happened if I had continued with living the alcoholic life. You know, this program has done so much for me and so much for others. Um, uh, and I'm just appreciative of it. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Chris C. Panelist number four, Melissa C. from New York. Hi, this is Melissa C. Are you able to hear me? Loud and clear. Okay, great. Hi, this is Melissa C. Um, uh, The sentence that I am going to speak on is, they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. And um, so, you know, I, I kind of broke down the words for me and looked them up. And um, restless is unable to relax or rest as a result of anxiety or boredom. And um, irritable is easily annoyed or made angry. And discontented is dissatisfied, especially with one's circumstances, you know. And, and so this is describing what I'm like um, when I'm not eating, you know. When I'm just abstinent, when I'm food sober, without having been treated, I'm unable to relax. You know, I'm bored, I'm anxious, I'm irritable, I'm easily annoyed, I'm easily angered, and I'm discontented. You know, I'm, I'm like, completely dissatisfied, especially with my circumstances. You know, in fact, um, I will fixate on all that is wrong 
and broken and unfavorable. And this feeling builds up inside, you know, it's like tick, 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 tick. And for me, you know, you combine that with a person who um, is a phony, you know, inauthentic, um, invested in putting on a good public image, um, queen of denial, the president of my internal PR firm, someone had told me once, um, and it's like a perfect storm that's brewing, you know, where the food really does seem like a step up, um, and the desire to soothe and comfort with an extra bite, a sweet dessert, a spoon off someone's plate, um, leftovers, it becomes too much for me. And, you know, and then I see others all around me doing this with impunity, you know, impunity, exempt from punishment. They're free, other people are free from the injurious consequences of that action. And, you know, and so all my friends, you know, my spouse, my family, my coworkers, they can get away with it, you know, and, and I would justify picking up um, with thoughts of reassurance that everyone else is having this, you know. I, I've been at situations, um, you know, at work where colleagues get really upset. Our, our boss comes at us with something unreasonable, and everybody's running into the staff room, and they're picking up the cookies and the bagels, and they're getting relief, you know. I've seen my husband, he can come home from a rough day at work, and he can pour himself a drink, um, and he gets relief, you know. And um, I've seen friends load their plates at, uh, at the cocktail hour at a wedding, you know, and they get loosened up, they shed their social awkwardness, um, they're, they're getting relief. These people all get away with this, you know. They get some ease and comfort, and but they don't trigger the allergy of the body. You know, they don't have what I have. And for me, if I do that, um, I've just set this monster free. You know, if I eat those cookies in the staff room, um, I can't help but think about how many cookies are left in that staff room the rest of the day. I don't get ease and comfort. I, I've triggered the the craving um, so that I am propelled to go back in the staff room, eat more, eat more, eat more, hoping to get away with it. You know, if I take that drink of liquid sugar, you know, or load my plate at a buffet, um, I'm back into the land of crazy. I've just, you know, let the, the monster fray, you know. And so, like, what are we to do about this? You know, that's like the real reason we're, we're here, right? Um because we're seeking the solution. I'm seeking the solution, you know. Um, so clearly the problem exists in my mind. You know, if I accept I have the allergy, you know, the only sensible solution is never eat my allergic foods, never set that tiger free. Um, only I can't help that this tiger that's in the cage, you know, my restless, irritable discontent, it's pacing back and forth and back and forth. And to me, you know, I've had the false perception that life keeps poking at that tiger. It keeps aggravating it. It's rattling its cages. It's it's poking at it with a stick. Um, and the biggest problem I have is my restlessness, my irritability, my discontentment, you know, and this is where the steps come in. You know, the steps treat my aggravated tiger inside. All my life, I was kind of seeking a stronger cage, you know, 
I either wanted um, to fight that inner tiger with willpower, put it in a strong cage, or else change the world's surroundings on the outside so that it didn't seem like they were rattling my cage. You know, um, and neither of those things work. You know, or sometimes I just wanted to let that tiger out of the cage, let it go crazy, and then get it back safely in the cage. And again, that didn't work, you know. So the steps really transformed for me that tiger. You know, it takes that tiger, that itchy, irritable, discontent feeling, and it turned it into a house cat, you know, occasionally irritated at times, but I have the ability to be soothed and feel safe. And this is me today mostly, you know, mostly incredibly content. And I don't have to live in a cage, you know. And But does this mean I'm never restless, irritable, or discontent? You know, no, of course not, because I'm human, you know. Um, but it means that I have a way of living that allows me to deal with these feelings um, in a way that's far better than denial, you know, or turning to the food. And, um, you know, this is where I, I can say I'm really grateful I have this disease because um, it's allowed me a way of life that I never would have come to know if I were like others that could get ease and comfort from the food, you know, with impunity. So when I look at my coworkers who um, use the cookies, um, I, I'm so grateful that that's not my go-to solution because um, they're still pissed off at the boss, you know, and working the steps of the program has allowed me to sort of let that go, you know. Um, once food's sober, you know, I needed to heal my restlessness, my irritability, and my discontentment. And, you know, and what was making me restless, you know, anxious, bored? Um, what was making me anxious? You know, everything. You know, but mostly believing that I had to control everything and everyone. And it was too much for me to handle, you know. How could I be anything other than anxious? Um, trying to play God is a huge, overwhelming task. Um, trying to control others through overdoing, through people-pleasing, it's too much, you know. And, um, when, you know, what about that boredom? Um, you know, when you're frustrated by ineffective attempts to control, I'd be exhausted and paralyzed and, and like, in a stupor. Um, and all this made me restless and you know, of course I was irritable and discontent. If your mind is fixating on all the ways that life is unsatisfying, how I wasn't getting what I wanted, how people were letting me down, um, yeah, you feel itchy inside, internally uncomfortable. Um, and, and, you know, it really calls to mind in the big book um, when they talk about um, trying to run the show, you know, trying to be the choreographer and the lead actor. And Really, what happens is that you grow more and more irritable and discontent. Um, you know, the doctor's opinion really tells me two crucial things. That, one, I have an allergy of the body for which there is no cure. And, two, I have a mind which will always lead me back to picking up my allergic substances. You know, but the good news is, is that there is that part there is a cure for. You know, my restlessness, my irritability, my discontentment, it can be treated, but not with food. You know, what treats this um, is thoughts of others, growing other-centered rather than remaining self-centered. When I think about others more, focus on being useful, my restlessness, my irritability, and my discontentment, it gets alleviated. And, um, you know, and I wouldn't trade that for all the gallons of ice cream in the world. Um, 
the ease and comfort that I was searching for all my life is not, you know, it's not in the back of the refrigerator. It's um, not going to get delivered to me through my car window at a drive-thru. Um, it's not in the gas station convenience stores. You know, it is found, however, right here and now. And my relationship with a loving and powerful God gives me all the ease and comfort I ever needed. You know, recovered means um, for me that my restlessness, irritability, and discontentment can be soothed today without the food. You know, so if you're unsure, um, if you're listening and you're unsure if this will work for you, um, I just love, like, examine the promises. You know, the ninth-step promises, they tell us we're going to know a new freedom, a new happiness. Um, we're going to comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. And um, and that's that's what it means to be recovered, and those things really are possible. Thank you. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Melissa C. Panelist number five, Janice M. from Massachusetts. And thank you so much, Leah M., for even asking me. It is really a privilege. My name is Janice M., and I'm a grateful, (laughs) recovered, compulsive overeater after decades, at least six decades in this program. Um, I just love, um, let me me, um, go over the sentence that I am going to develop or give you my experience, and it's after... After they have succumbed to the desire, again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of esprit, emerging, remorseful, and with a firm resolution not to drink again. (laughs) Boy, the story of my life. After... After what? After putting the food down, okay? That means now that I'm abstinent. I'm going to develop the sentence here. Um, you know, not before. I used to always think, well, you know, it, I don't succumb to the desire. I, did, I succumb from the mental, from the craving that's before. No. Dr. Opinion states that after they give in, I'm already, I'm already abstinent, say, happened trillions of times. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I was abstinent, then I gave in to the desire of what I wanted, the disease. Like so many do. Well, if you're a compulsive overeater, that's what you do. If you're not a compulsive overeater in your normal when it comes to certain substances, it won't take you into a vicious cycle. A normal person will say, okay, I can't eat peanuts, so I'm going to stop. And then they don't start again. Why? Because they don't develop the phenomenon of craving. They just stop. They don't have that mental. They don't have that mental obsession. See, now there's a difference between a mental obsession and a craving. Now, I know the Webster Dictionary says, oh, it's a longing for, it's a desire for. But, you know, when Dr. Silkworth wrote this this, uh, chapter, you know, it was his opinion because, you know, they didn't have the scientific knowledge that they have today. 
So it was an opinion. So he labeled the allergy as the phenomenon of craving, which meant as soon as we put that substance for the, for doctors, for the doctor's opinion world, it was alcoholics, but I identify the same. As soon as I put a certain substance in my body, it created a physical allergy. Physical allergy refers to the phenomenon of craving for me. See, I could never get that. I could never get that. I always thought, oh, I crave the donut, so I better pick it up. No. The craving comes when I ingest this substance. Now, the desire, that's my disease. The disease is telling me, you know, wasn't I your friend? The desire comes from the mind. So my disease told me, that's the obsession, well, wasn't I your friend when you were lonely, you know? Didn't I make you nice and comfortable so you wouldn't feel anything? Didn't I give you instant gratification? Didn't I take away the fear from you? This is my disease talking to me, and I'm listening. <laughs> you know, I'm listening. So what do I do? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to invite the disease back in. See, I'm abstinent, but I'm going to, the obsession of the mind takes over. So, but with a, with a person that has a, 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 a peanut allergy, they just stop. They do not have that obsession. That's why they don't start again. And if I, had, if I didn't have the obsession, I would just stop eating donuts after a certain while, you know, and uh, I wouldn't desire it again, maybe, but I wouldn't be obsessed, you know. I wouldn't be remorseful. Uh, but, but me, as a, as a real compulsive overeater, that phenomenon of craving develops. Now, I didn't want it to develop. I just wanted to have it and just be able to, to keep not having it or pick it up when I desired it. But what do I do? What does it happen in my body? It creates the phenomenon of craving for more. If I didn't put it into my, if I didn't eat a half a donut, you know, and I went through all the methods that we know of, a little bit, maybe just a half a dozen, you know, uh, didn't, if I just could do that without producing in my body, I didn't produce it, my body produces this phenomenon of craving, and then I go to a binge. This is how it is in my life. This is how it, this is how it was in my life. And then I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry afterwards. And then no matter how many times I say, you know what, I'm never going to do that again. I'm not going to have donuts. That's a trigger food for me. What would I do? I would pick it up again. Because, you see, I didn't know that I was so powerless by me. My power. Couldn't do it. And I couldn't, I was trying for decades. I mean, I could stay here for three hours telling you all the methods that I did, all the eating that I did, all the behaviors that I did, you know, to try to solve this mystery. And try to manage by me this whole process. Firm resolution. And I really meant it. You know, but I love the title of, of our panel today. It's the vicious cycle. Vicious. <laughs> that sounds a little malicious to me. Vicious cycle. And what's a cycle? 
a cycle is never ending. It's endless. It goes over and over and over. It's like recycling uh, uh, the garbage bag. You know, you put it in, you can recycle it, it comes out again. That's That was me. That was my life. And um, I did it uh, before I even came into OA. I did it with gambling. But you see, the the the, um, the problem was solved because when we become, when my emotions see that's the whole thing is my emotions, how I'm feeling. My biggest emotion was fear. Now, if you asked me. Oh, fear, fear, you know, fear is the corroding thread. I'd say, well, I'm not afraid of anything. <laughs> I was afraid to teach. I didn't think of myself good enough. I was afraid to get pregnant. I was afraid uh, to do a lot of things. And I was frustrated. My ego was so high. I was anxious. I was uh, resentful. And those are the emotions and feelings that led me to feel more comfortable. And I felt that when I was eight years old, I know I had the obsession and I know I had the allergy. I didn't know that it was that then. But I, I go looking back as I used to sit in school on Friday afternoon and be can't wait till school gets over so that I could go to my nana's. So I would feel so comfortable and not afraid. She would make the Italian pasta for me. And uh, See, that was the obsession. Little girls, eight years old, don't do that. <laughs> they don't think of going over the grandmothers, you know. You can think of playing or whatever. So I had it then, you know. So the cycle begins. The addiction cycle began. Everything is about my feelings, okay? And then it comes to, you know, the cycle. It starts, then it goes to obsession, then it goes to remorse, then it goes to, uh, to resolution, and then I pick up, I pick up, and I succumb to it. I give give in to my my um, my allergy, and it starts all over again. Never gets better. It becomes more vicious, more vicious to my life. It gets worse and worse. Not only with the eating, but with my behaviors, with my thinking, not becoming the woman that my higher power, whom I choose to call God, wants me to be. I never set out to become who I became. But today, putting the food down, going through the, the treatment of the 12 steps has arrested my disease. Thank you, God, because I couldn't do it. And I think that's the first step to know that I have to accept who I am. I'm not normal when it comes to eating certain substances. I am a real compulsive overeater. And with that, I'm going to pass. Thanks. Thank you, Janice M. Panelist number six, Ginger C. from Colorado. Good morning, Leah, and thank you so much for asking me to be of service this morning. And, um, and a special shout-out to anyone who's new. The sentence um, that I'm going to be elaborating on is this is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. And I'm just going to flip over to page 25 because this paragraph really feels like our options here in another way from the sentence I just read. Uh, you'll often hear on the lines, we have two doors. And if you are seriously, as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. 
we were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. And the sentence, going back to it, this over and over and over and over was my life. This is all I knew in OA. And I honestly never thought this relentless door of relapse was ever going to end. And it baffled me because I was able to put a few 24 hours together in another program, but I could not stop eating. And I just honestly thought this one was going to my grave. There's no way I can ever say goodbye to this food. And it's always going to be with me. And as we all know, you know, it just progresses. Our disease progress. And thank God they progress because that's when the bottoms usually come. And we finally surrender, completely surrender, and we've had enough. Um, so I just was so maladjusted since birth. You know, the big book in the doctor's opinion says we're maladjusted to life. I feel like I was maladjusted since my birth, and I just did not like life on life's terms. Um, My mom had horrible postpartum depression, and I pretty much came home to a nanny to be raised, and I've never had a connection with my mother. And at age five, she actually physically left our home, and that was the day that I saw food as my best friend. You know, at that age of being a young child, um, all I saw was people hurt you and abandon you. So I found this food for comfort, you know, a child looking for that mother's love that wasn't present or available. So the food became my best friend. And as I said, at an early age, so the child I found too, I found food and I found cartoons and I really loved Saturday mornings because I hated school and I finally didn't have to be in school And I had my bowl of cereals and boxes of cereals because I just ate one bowl after the other. And then cartoons were on all morning long. And it was salvation. So at this early age, finding food to be the solution, you know, it was my escape. It was my everything. I didn't know how to be in life without that bite. I just did not know how to go through this thing called life. Life presents me with new information. And I always went to the food for the answer. And this is the insanity that's over and over, you know, it kept kicking me to the curb. The bites were no longer working, yet I couldn't stop. And part of the reasons why I couldn't stop is I didn't have these directions, but I never saw this allergy component to our disease. So I was in OA for 15 plus years trying to do a ginger's way. I wanted to have my cake and I wanted to have it and eat it too. So a couple of the games that I would play with my food in order to still be able to eat is I thought, well, I'll have sugar-free be part of my life. You know, I'll give up the cane sugar, but I'm going to eat everything sugar-free possible and binge my brains out on it, you know, and anything sweet to my tongue is going to get me back into a full-blown binge. It's just a matter of time. Another game I played is I wasn't willing to look at labels and my sponsor would say, you know, ginger sauces can be slippery. And I would say, well, maybe they're slippery for you, but not for me. Again, no one was going to tell me what to do. I wasn't ready. Food was everything. It was my survival. So I would have chicken, and I would load it up and slather it with tons of barbecue sauce. You couldn't even see the chicken anymore. 
And of course, I'm heading right out the door back into a full-blown binge because if you look at the label on barbecue sauce, it's loaded with sugar. I'm allergic to sugar. Now I understand the allergy disease, part of the disease. And then the greatest lie I told myself repeatedly through many, many relapses in OA is that, well, Ginge, you're really uncomfortable. Life is really hard. And at least it's not alcohol because I'm also an alcoholic. And that gave me permission to let that bite come in. So, you know, thank God for every beautiful bite I had to take. Because that incomprehensible demoralization finally came in. And I felt drunk at 24 years of sobriety. My mornings began by opening my nightstand drawer and reaching into my box of lemon heads. I needed a shot like a shot of whiskey, even before my feet would hit the floor. And that disgusted me. And as I did this, I just prayed every morning that my husband was not watching. I wanted to die. I was in so much pain. As I said, this disease only progresses. It never gets better. With every relapse I took, it just got worse. And this one took me down hard and fast. And I finally hit the bottom that is needed, I believe, in order to really get this program because I finally was out of ideas and I was willing to go to any length. The how entered my heart, honest, open, and willing. At this point in my relapse, I was so suicidal that I was going into the car, into the garage with my dog, and I was not ever planning on leaving that garage. And I was so scared. I was like, I knew, just call the psychiatrist, get help, Ginger. And I also knew at the same moment, if you stop eating sugar, you're not going to feel this way. Ginger, you're only suicidal when you eat sugar. But the problem is I can't stop once I start. I only wish I could. I wouldn't be on the lines this morning if I could stop. I would have done it a long time ago. Because, you know, the reality is, is this disease affects all around us. And I had to watch my kids. They saw this mom that was bottoming out in her sugar addiction. I had wrappers under my pillows. I was hiding food. My daughter would come in my room. I'd have my mouth filled with chocolate. I didn't want them to know that I was eating again. And then I'd just give her this really scorned look so she would leave the room so I could finish my bite. But they would come home after school and see this mom still in bed. And that's the reality. When you start eating sugar with these lemon heads in the morning, you can't get out of bed. And a lot of people know me on this line, and I'm not one to be in bed out there and doing in this world. But food robs me of my life. So, again, thank God for this, you know, surrendered state, finally, you know, beaten, out of ideas, finally raising the white flag and willing to go to any lengths over alcohol. You know, but a price had to be paid, and that's what the big book says. This is not a gift that we're given. We work for this. It takes action and more action. This disease is cunning, baffling, powerful, and sneaky. It slips in sideways. So, you know, simple but not easy, and I'm so grateful my sponsor would say over and over, how free do you want to be? And that's all he had to say. And I was like, yep, I want, I want what you have, and I want freedom. So I found a big book sponsor, and I found these clear-cut directions. 
And I worked as like my life depended on it because I know it does. It was my last chance. I was so tired of relapse and I knew I didn't have many more chances. And I'd never seen this way. I'd never seen the big book way. Even being in AA, you would think I would know this book. I never knew the book. Just found it two, the, two years ago in 2015. So it became my full-time job. But then I think, how willing was I to go get my food? I was insane. I was ordering from Chicago from Fannie Mae. That's my hometown. I love that candy. You know, I was willing to fly to New York City for a cronut, for God's sake. You know, it, it's work, but it's not that much work. And I think of the slave that I was to the food and the lengths that I would go to get it. This is simple. And this is my life. So God works in these mysterious and miraculous ways, always doing for me what I cannot do for myself. And the greatest gift was this step zero, this freedom. You know, it began with this funeral. I finally had to de- have a death of food and really say goodbye. That was hard. As I said, from early childhood, it's been my best friend. It's all I've known for comfort, for ease. The way to go through this thing called life. I didn't think I could be in this world without it. And I finally had to say goodbye, really say goodbye. And see entire abstinence for what it was. I can't eat my cake and have it too. I have to be honest. I have to look at these allergies and these behaviors. What trips me up? You know, and there's such freedom in it. With such freedom at the beginning of really understanding that and doing it because I knew if it didn't come in, it probably wouldn't take me out. And I can't afford to go back out. My family has suffered long enough. You know, these moms, I was a sober mom, but I was a sugar mom. And there were a lot of absent days. And my daughter, her nickname for me was Nummy Num Nums. And that's not funny. That is reality. That's how disconnected and how checked out she felt for me and and the pain of my bites. So, you know, thank God this entire abstinence and this freedom because there was no longer white-knuckling abstinence. I did that so many days in OA. And a lot of times I'd go to bed at 6 o'clock just to say I was, oh, I was, quote, abstinent another day. I wasn't really even abstinent, but I thought I was. But it was so painful. It was so painful. Now it's not. It's freedom. I really just don't have thoughts of my food. I do my food plan and that's it. It's pretty simple. You know, finally the food was quiet and the thoughts were leaving. I wasn't bombarded in my mind about food. And I'll never forget when I left Virginia Beach. I was just a, couple, a day or two maybe with the food down after a horrible binge and relapse. And my gateway took me right to a Dunkin' Donuts, my number one binge friend. And I was like texting my sponsor, How, what do I do? You know, I honestly was like paralyzed. Now today I walk anywhere free in this world. It just doesn't bother me. I've got to drive through Dunkin' Donuts right behind my house. I could care less. That's amazing. And no longer do I want to die. You know, I'm alive, I'm awake, and I'm alert. That's miraculous because when I eat sugar, I want to die. I don't know how to live life on life's terms and be in this world. And now I'm engaged and in connection. I'm with other people. I show up. I return phone calls in a prompt manner. I used to not even return people's phone calls. Um. You know, just beginning to feel this presence of the higher power doing for me what I cannot do for myself. 
And then as we continue working through these steps, we just see these miracles continue happening. I start returning back to that perfect person that God created that was from my birth. You know, God doesn't create junk. And I got to start going back to that place and that source and believe in myself and love myself in a way that I just was never able. And I began to let go of the many lies and stories I told myself. And also starting to disconnect and, and, and be willing to let go of these defects. You know, these defects are, were survival tools that I used as in, in my childhood, but they're no longer surviving me today. They're killing me. And I've already survived. So now I'm willing and, and working with God to have these removed. Take them from me. Root and branch. You know, and, and these miraculous things, again, this higher power doing for me what I cannot do for myself because I'm selfish and self-centered. I just want to think about me. You know, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. Be in love and service and connection and to be doing God's work. Thy will be done. How can I best serve you today? But one of the most amazing miracles that happened recently in this working these 12 steps and following these clear-cut directions With this mother that left when I was five, I was able to make an amends to her. And when my sponsor said I had to make an amends, I about died. And I was like, did you just not hear my fist step? And then again, how free do you want to be? And I am so grateful for this urgency that this program of vision and the clear-cut directions and the study of the text that we follow, because my mother's old. She's almost 80. And she could die any day. She's still drinking. And she's an alcoholic. And that amends I made to her was a life-changing experience. And I am so glad I didn't miss it. Just like this experience of this entire psychic change, I am so glad I didn't miss it and that I have it today because I have such hope that I will die a sober member of OA if I just maintain this daily reprieve, 10, 11, and 12. But, you know, making this an amends to my mom shifted something in me that just couldn't get shifted with all the therapy. I can't even tell you how many therapists have tried to reach that place. But God was able to. And it, became, it came from doing this action and this work, this willingness, this courage. It was so hard to pick up the phone. I hadn't talked to her in 15 years. But it happened, and it was unbelievable. And then I got to hear her truth, her pain. And she just said, thank you so much for doing what you did. I only wish I had the courage to have called my mom while she was still alive. And, you know, we just get to keep growing with this infinite God and trusting. You know, as a child with my mom leaving, worry was my best friend. All I knew was worry. I'd just pick at my fingers, and my dad would always say, what's going on? And I was always worried, waiting for the left shoe to drop constantly. You know, mom left, when dad leaving? You know, just never, never had any peace in my mind. Always had that angst. You know, and now we, I have this infinite God that I just trust and rely on. And right now, you know, especially going through life is uncomfortable. And I would always run, run to the food, take the edge off, help me get through it. You know, now I run to God. God, help me. And I just started this brand new job, and it has been extremely uncomfortable. It's been a 9 out of 10 a lot of these last days at work. And I'm still showing up. And some of my coworkers are surprised I'm still showing up because they know this angst. 
But this is this, this shift, this entire psychic change. I have a source. I believe God's brought me to this for a reason. And I just have to keep showing up and staying close and connected and always holding God's hand. You know, and the greatest thing that I'm just going to end with is this service piece. You know, I always thought service was holding the door for an old lady at the store. You know, that's a kind act. But the service that we do here now, it's, it's, it's giving away what was so freely given. And it is reading line by line in this book and sponsoring. And it's not sponsoring. A kindly act once in a while is not enough. This is constant. This is daily. I just pray I'm always with one to two to three, you know, always in the book and always reading with someone. We have to remain on the firing line. Because the book says on 89, you can help when no one else can. And on page 124, you can avert death and misery. That's unbelievable. So I just pray that I always stay in this fit spiritual condition and, and open to God. I don't know what God wants me to do today. I just pray that I stay open and connected to God so I can receive that and be available, not in ginger and my selfish thoughts, thinking about me and my poor me and my life's hard or whatever's going on. No, how can I be of service, God? How can I help you today? Because nothing saves the day, and there is no greater joy from working with others and it is the foundation to my recovery. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Ginger C. And our seventh and final panelist, Sylvia F. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, visionaries. This is Sylvia F., um, a recovered compulsive overeater in California. And I'm so happy to be on the line with all of you this morning. Um, we've heard so much about the paragraph uh, with the disease and the uh, and succumbing to the disease and then that last paragraph is that we get the entire psychic change and we get to the paragraph um, the next paragraph and it's uh, if you're just joining it's on Roman numeral 29 XXIX and it is on the other hand and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand once the psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. What a chock-full paragraph here. And um, every, every word, every phrase is so perfect, which is what I love about the big book. I just, the, the miracle of this textbook uh, is is uh, something that carries me through my recovery and carries me through when I work with others. Um, and to start with, you know, we've just talked about, you know, the death and destruction, the misery of this disease. And I definitely was living in the misery of the disease when I came in in my, uh, I had the disease my whole life. Uh, I didn't know that that's what I had. I knew I felt different. I felt apart from, different, separate from everyone, and I didn't know why. And, uh, and so what happened finally is I was in my early 50s, and uh, I could not stop eating, and I couldn't even stop hiding the eating. That's probably where I'd gotten. And when I finally, finally, finally found um, the program, I didn't know anything about it. I was terrified of coming into a 12-step program. I had no experience with it. I had no experience with God. And uh, I was, it was early in the morning, 
And I was standing in front of the freezer with a tablespoon, and I was trying to eat out of the bottom of the ice cream container and crying because I could not stop. And that was just that was just the end. I could tell you many, many, many stories. I think that all those stories have been told. You know, all the times I had to eat in my car so nobody could see. And on my way to a meeting, I'd have to stop at the mini mart like it was the liquor store so I could... I could, you know, get my courage up to go into a meeting that I knew was going to be uh, challenging. I didn't know that the reason it was going to be challenging was because of me. Um, uh, often, not completely, but I had a big part to do with it. So, so, um, so I came into OA. I, you know, I was terrified. I thought I was joining a cult. I knew nothing about anything, and it didn't matter. I was out of ideas. So here, here we've had, you know, so many people describing this morning the disease so, so well, and I could relate so well. And then it comes and says, on the other hand, and I love that they make me laugh, on the other hand. So, uh, you know, here we have death and destruction, or on the other hand, we have recovery. And we hear it on the lines all the time. I, I want to say that I don't have an original idea. Thank God. Um, my original ideas uh, never worked for me. So you're going to hear me quote everybody who you hear on the lines, and that's because it's so apt. So you know, we always hear you know, uh, that we have door number one or door number two. You know, we have door number one is death and destruction, you know, or, or we have door number two is recovery. And on, on – uh, Let's see, it's on page 25, I think. It says, one has to go to the bitter end or two to accept spiritual help. And then again, it says, and we agnostics, we are, you know, door number one, doomed to an alcoholic death, or door number two, live on a spiritual basis. And, um, it, you know, they say it so lightly, on the other hand, and strange as it might seem to someone who doesn't understand, my family my friends could never understand why I couldn't stop eating. They also couldn't, they didn't understand the miracle. They could see, the next line, once a psychic change has occurred, they could see the psychic change. It wasn't that I had massive weight loss, you know, one day, but they could see that I wasn't, I wasn't um, always in the kitchen. I wasn't absent. I had a light in my eyes. I was present. So that psychic change was an amazing event that everyone else could could um, could witness, even before I could. So the very same person who seemed doomed, that was me, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them. And I didn't even know what my problems were. No wonder I couldn't solve them. I just knew that nobody was doing what I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted, um, and that if they would only do what I said or what I directed, I would be fine and they would be fine, which now, you know, I learned in the big book that that's a lie. It, I, I, I have no, no better ideas than anyone else. And I'm not asked. That's, that's the biggest lesson, I guess, is I'm not asked. Then it says, suddenly finds himself easily, easily able to control his desire for alcohol. So there, you know, it's promising us that neutrality of food, which is, you know, that's that 10-step promise. We want to get that before we do the work. But, you know, that 10-step promise on page 84, it says, you know, we have ceased fighting anything, which is my food, or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. I've been insane. 
Uh, I could see it with my food. I couldn't see it in my life until I worked these steps. We will seldom be interested in alcohol, and if tempted, we react from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we find this has happened automatically. Um, that's the miracle of it. I'm not going to finish that paragraph right now. So what I want to talk about is that um, it says, the only effort necessary, and I love that the big book is, it doesn't equivocate. It does not, it, it is so directive. And I think that that's why the OA 12 and 12 didn't work for me. I think that it does a great job of making me identify with the disease, but it didn't give me the directions here that says the only necessary being that required. There's, a, you know, it doesn't say we suggest. It might, some of us have found that. It doesn't do anything like that. It says it is required to follow a few simple rules. We have to do the steps. So, um, so I have gotten that entire psychic change, and I, I get it one day at a time. And so, you know, that, so what are they talking about here? And it is straightforward, and they keep on repeating it. But this is what I get out of it. It's the first thing when I came in, someone told me I had to put the plug in the jug, like an alcoholic. I had to get abstinence. So I made an abstinence. I, I agreed with what my abstinence was. And for me, definitely flour and sugar. Um, and, and then there was eating behaviors, but I had to figure out what that abstinence is. And I had to get abstinent because otherwise my brain didn't work. And my brain was the problem. I did not realize that. I thought food was the problem. No, food was not the problem. That was my solution. And my brain was the problem. And then I had to work the steps. I had to, I had to clean up the wreckage of the past. I had so much shame about things that a lot of them are minutia, but I had made great big mountains out of things. So I had to go through and do that step four, um, which gave me incredible relief. I, I was in the program a year or two doing steps one, two, and three, you know, doing that dance. Finally, someone recommended, you know, if you really want to get the relief, why don't you do step four? Sat down, did step four in a weekend and uh, got incredible relief. And then... You know, that, that's still, you know, then and doing my men's, but that's still looking backwards. That's cleaning up the wreckage. But that's not yet getting the promise of what this in, entire psychic change and this freedom is. And so then I had to learn to surrender and trust God. I came in without, I came in agnostic. I, I didn't know anything about God. I was desperate enough that they said, you know, you're going to have to find a spiritual, uh, a spiritual solution and, uh, and find God. And I'm like, fine, you know, show me where. And um, I came in and said, okay, I can accept that I'm not God. That's where I started. So my God was not me. And then the chapter on the agnostics uh, was so powerful for me. And especially we're on page 55. We found that we finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. And it says, in, it, we found the great, great reality deep down within us. So I, I started to find God. And then I had to work the, set, work the steps daily. And, you know, what does that mean? I, I always heard, you know, you're in self-will or, you know, you got to work the steps daily. I had no idea what that meant. For me, 
it is surrender. It's surrender on a daily basis. And surrender means knowing that my first thought is often my my worst thought. And so, um, you know, this, this step 10 was a powerful, powerful part of my recovery, and it still is. I didn't realize how crazy my thinking was. And so I would have a thought or a feeling or my idea was a potato chip or frozen yogurt. It didn't matter. It would be just a thought. And what I, what step 11 would get me to is, oh, go to God, go to God. And it would get me the pause. And I love the pause. They say the pause is where you find God. But the pause definitely is where I don't have to act on the crazy thought. And I still have those crazy thoughts all the time. And I still reach out to, people, to the membership to get, to get some response or to get some direction on that, on that crazy thought. And I go to God immediately. So I get the pause. And then the next thought when I go to God is like, ah, that's a crazy thought. I don't have to act on that. And I ask for God, I ask for direction from God or for a, a recovered member. And then I work with others. And working with others helps me get out of self. You know, there, as this is a simple program, worked daily. That's what I find, work daily. And that a vision, the vision for you, you know, it, it's a big book study, but this is, when I got into here, I, I got on from the first meeting, and I've been pretty much listening to a meeting every day, and I, when I sponsor, I have my, um, my sponsors listen every day, and it's because my brain needs to hear what the solution is and what the directions are, what the problems are, how to do this every day. Important part of my recovery, and um, I, I have gotten the promises. Uh, my life is unbelievable. And I went out yesterday and helped a cousin uh, move out of her house. It, it's been two days. I would have to have directed. I would have had to be defensive. I would have had to feel a martyr. I could just show up yesterday, be of service, come home tired, and do it again today. That is a miracle of showing up for others and being okay with it. And with that, um, thank you so much, uh, for allowing me to share my recovery. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sylvia S. And thanks to all our panelists this morning for sharing your personal insights with all of us. Contact information for our panelists will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to questions. If you have a question you'd like to ask one of our panelists you can press star one to unmute and identify yourself please susan c susan c jenny w san diego jenny w kathy k kathy k this is larry and larry k good morning good morning all right let's start with that susan C. Go ahead. Thanks so much, Leah and panelists. This is this question is directed to any one of you who chooses to respond. Um, obviously, all of you have a period of abstinence under your belt, as I do, and so sometimes I like to look at what was underneath. Look at this paragraph from the perspective of what was underneath 
the the need to keep doing that cycle back when I was doing that cycle. And I still do that cycle in some ways with people, meaning, and I'm just going to say this quickly because it's leading to a question, that I have a shaky foundation. And so that in the times that I don't turn to my higher power, I might turn to people and perpetuate that cycle. And I wondered if anyone uh, relates to that and how you work with that in the context of this paragraph. It really can apply to more than just the food or a substance, in my opinion. Thanks, Pat. Rachel W. Rachel, go ahead. Thanks. Okay, thank you for the question, and this is such an amazing panel today. Um, just a quick answer for myself as I, I just know exactly what you mean, and I'm, I find that, um, yeah, definitely in recovery, I see my problem isn't the food, it's, it's, it's other, other things that arise. Um, and Bill W., in the, I, I think of the Bill W. Grapevine article from 1958, where he says that um, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependency and its consequent unhealthy demand. So let us, with God's help, continually surrender these hobbling demands, and then we can be set free to live in love. And we may then be able to 12-step ourselves and others into emotional sobriety. So I'm just going to end with that, but just to say that I often do direct myself back here to the idea that Bill does say that it is possible to achieve that emotional sobriety and that we can we can 12-step ourselves. And I'm not saying that precludes our relationship with other fellows or God, but rather that there is something within us that can continually be circling back to the process. And, you know, I apply this to anything in my life. But, but thank you so much for the question. I hope that helped. Thank you, Susan C. Jamie W., Jamie W, star one, to unmute, please. Jamie W, San Diego, sorry about that. Go Can ahead, please. Thank you, Larry, yes. and thank you, panelists. I appreciate your shares this morning. Um, Reva P, um, I struggle with bulimia as well. It's a feature of compulsive overeating. I find voices um, have gone away. Um, do you relate to the voices that tell you you have to purge? And um, how soon as you surrendered to the program did you find that they went away? I passed. Hi, it's Reva. Um, so let me just thank you for the question. So the question is, how long did it take for the voices that tell me I have to purge? How long did it take for them to go away? Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Um, let me think. How long did that take? Um, in terms of a timeline, um, I think it's just the same obsession, whether it's that I have to purge or I have to overeat or I have to undereat. It's all the same thing. And those things um, disappear um, once I put down the foods and started getting more heavily into the steps. And I know now as we read um, the big book, you know, that promise is more in step 10. Um, 
I would say the physical detox um, was torture um, coming off the binging, the laxatives, and the copious amounts of sugar um, and white flour. Um, So the physical, I don't even remember anymore in terms of the timeline, you know, 30 days for sure and probably a couple of months. But you know what, to be honest, to this day, if I'm really restless, irritable, and discontent, I can get the urge again unless I do my 10, 11, and 12. Um, that seems to be my go-to, my mental twist, that any time I'm really disturbed, I just want to do something with my drug of choice so I'll get my fix. So it's definitely quieter, um, and there are rarely days um, now um, but I think um, if I expect that it's just totally gone, um, I, I don't think that's realistic. I think this is who I am. This is where my mind goes. And the greater the emotional disturbance, the more likely I'm going to go there. Um, so it's it's better, um, but it's always lurking in the background. That's all I can think of. Thank you for the question. Thank you, Jamie Hi, W. Hi. This is Cliff. May I share? Of course, Cliff. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate the question. I truly do. But you know, at least for me, you know, I was I was always overweight, and uh, and I was trying to be a an exercise bulimic. You know, when I would do triathlons and things like that, and and similar to the uh, previous speaker responding, it was. You know, when I put the foods down, when I didn't, I no longer was triggering the allergy of the body. And and it took a while, you know. Uh, but I, I remember when I was ready to let go of exercise because my sponsor was concerned that I would over-exercise, having already done triathlons and marathons and, and, and the like. He was concerned that as I lost weight, I would just go back out there and really be an exercise bulimic. And um, uh, but it was when I was seeing the uh, the results of of the physical recovery and and letting God in just a little bit that uh, it was enough to just let me do this one day at a time. But I really I, I remember. I remember when I had about nine months of abstinence that uh, I, you know, had had done something, and I remember my body starts talking to me, body parts saying, "I want to move faster. I want to do this," and it was letting go and listening to what my body, what God was really telling me to do, and. Uh, but it was all one day at a time, and uh, I'm just grateful. That's all I have. Thank you, Jamie W., for the question. Kathy K., your turn. Thank you, Leah, for your continued service, and thank you to all the panelists. I really um, I got so much out of your shares today. And I'm sitting here thinking about... Um, a current situation that I'm baffled by and thought any of you might be able to comment on it. 
And that is recently I've had a couple of people uh, who are in recovery come to me and say uh, they're no longer abstinent um, and they don't know what to do. Uh, They picked up an extra ounce of cheese the other day or um, they're taking a snack of abstinent food at night that was not on their plan for the day. And I just wonder how, whether any of you have experienced that, um, how you address it in your own recovery and how you would help someone who is stymied by it or feeling as though they are in relapse. Thank you. This is Sylvia. Sylvia, go ahead, please. Uh, this is Sylvia, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Um, I, I expect that we could get a good dialogue going on on this because uh, this is the one where we get to be different um, and find our recovery. And um, so this, this is the thing for me is that I have to be so careful in my recovery about perfectionism. And um, so if, if, if I had, and so I also often sponsor with that same concern if I hear it in one of my sponsees. So this is it for me. I'll just talk about myself. Is that um, I did uh, weigh and measure for many years, and I don't now. And one of the reasons that I don't is that perfectionism piece and the judgmental. I'm so judgmental about myself. So I when when someone says... I'm not abstinent and I need to start over. For me, that one, whether it's been a couple of nuts or cheese, yes, it is important. I absolutely believe that it is critical. But I take it as a measure of my spiritual fitness. When I do something like that, if, I, if all of a sudden there's a couple more nuts there or something, my first thought now is, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And I go back and I try and figure out what the heck is making me think that I need that extra food or what am I doing? So I I go back to the big book and I go back to working the steps to figure out what is making me think that I need to pick up extra food. And I also do that with my sponsees. But now, you know, but I use that your example specifically because if if someone, you know, has gone out and, and sugar is absolutely part of their abstinence, and they've gone out and they've decided that an ice cream cone is okay. That's not a slip, right? That is, you know, you have gone out and you're an alcoholic. You've just gone to the bar. So, you know, I think that I wanted to make the distinction that there is a difference. I use it as a, a barometer of my spiritual fitness. I go quickly and do the work to figure out what the heck is going on. And I would be fascinated to hear what other people think. I think that this is the range that we have in this group of finding our recovery. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kathy Kay, for the question. Kurjita, have further conversations on this uh, one-on-one. Larry Kay, please. Hey, Leah, thanks so much uh, for your service and thanks to the panelists. The only one that I had a beef with is who I have a question for, which is, uh, I don't know where you found this ginger C, but I got a question for her. Um, Ginger, so what I heard you say was that your mother abandoned you 
at the age of four or five, and you're going to make amends to her, she, she brought you more harm than you brought her, why, why does that have anything? What does that have anything to do with your recovery? Wouldn't it have been better to just leave it alone, maybe go lose some weight, and then abandon her? Forget about her. What does that have anything to do with your recovery? <laughs> with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Hi, this is Ginger, and... Um, yeah, it's a great question, and, you know, this program's about honesty and, and seeing where I've caused harm in my life, and rightly so, she, she had her part, absolutely, but I had my part, too. I had alienation of affection, and I had my harm that I uh, brought back to her, and I needed to, to own that because, again, I lacked power, and I had a place in my heart that was disconnecting me from God, and I just want to be completely connected. So, yes, willing to go to any lengths to be free, and some amends are harder than others, but I think those harder ones sometimes, too, are the most um, life-changing. So thanks for the question. Thank you very much, Larry Kay. <laughs> I get it now. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Who else has a question this morning for our panelists? Star 1 to unmute to identify yourself, please. This is Taylor B. Taylor B. Anyone else? All right, Taylor, go ahead, please. Hi, this is uh, this is my first question. <laughs> so, hello, everybody. Um, and I have my wife listening upstairs, so we're both on. Um, and it, this is actually for Ginger as well. I, you know, I just wanted to make a couple comments. One is that, um, you, you know, I think for me, I'm relatively new in this program. And I'm not new to 12 steps. It's been over 30 years for me that I've been actively involved in 12 steps. And, um, you know, I've kind of listened a lot to the visions meeting, just kind of in awe of how everyone is working the steps and that it's so focused on the steps, you know, having been in the 12 steps for as long as I have, I've never seen it work quite this way. And it's very attractive to me, kind of like what you were saying, Ginger. And um, uh, the other piece is, and, and I'm just going to say this, is that the way that I, my issues with food show up differently, I think, than a lot of people's. I've never looked, if you looked at me from the outside, I've never looked underweight and I've never looked overweight. I look like a, a quote unquote normie, as we would put, call somebody an AA, what if somebody who can drink drinks and that's a normie. So that's how I look. I'm a maintenance maintenance person. I always would get up and go to my job. But anyway, um, I just wanted to say around the sugar. So this is where it's just shown up for me in sugar addiction. Uh, you know, where at an early age, that was my first addiction, long before drugs and alcohol, uh, candy bars, pizza, right? Just how, how do you... what? How do you, Ginger, you know, reconcile how you fit into OA? Because um, I heard you describe it a little differently than others have described. And I've been like, do, do I fit here? Is this for me? 
you know, I mean, yeah, I've stolen money to go get to buy candy. And, and, and you know, when, when I eat sugar, it's like having a hangover for me, right? I wake up and, you know, my wife is like, who the hell are you? And it's hard for me to get out of bed. But just how do you reconcile that piece? And um, because that, that's a struggle for me when I get on the phone sometimes with people in OA, I, I don't, I, I like wonder if they understand if, if how we can relate, I guess I'd say. Anyway, and just in a general thank you to everyone and the panelists. Uh, it's, it's making a difference in my life and also in my life with my family uh, as well. So that's it. Is that, is that a clear question? Actually, I'm a little unclear. Um, you know, with my addiction, I just, you know, with sugar, I am just absolutely insane. As soon as it enters my mouth, as soon as I taste it, you know, I just want more. And that's my adverse reaction, that abnormal reaction. You know, I want more and I cannot stop. So I don't know if that helps with your question. Yeah, I, and I guess what what I was asking is, and I'm the same way with sugar, and but but I'm also maintenance, right? I, I I fool myself into thinking, you know, I don't end up at the binging, right? I don't end up, or that's not true. My binges with sugar will go on for months, right? If I'm eating sugar and I'll hide it, and, you know, be suddenly I'm like cranky and not doing well at work, and I'm a foggy brain. So yes, it leads to that. I'm just wondering for you, how does it show up with other areas of food, right? With does it a trigger for you to binge or overeat in in other in other ways? That's how it shows up for me. Um, I'm just curious for you. You're the first person I've heard with this sugar trigger. You know. That I so identify with. I'm just wondering, you know, how how does it how does it look for you with the rest of food? I mean, if you don't have sugar, do you still do you still binge? I mean, is it still? I mean, how does it work for you? I guess, and and maybe I already know the answer. Yeah. Well, and and I'd be more than happy to talk to you too after the meeting because I know we're going over a little bit. Um, but you know, I just I know my alcoholic foods, and and I absolutely adhere to that red list. Um, cheese and butter are two other alcoholic items. So as long as they don't come in, I don't crave and I don't want more. Um, but I'd be more than happy to share more with you um, after the phone call. So I'll give you my phone number. That'd be great. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Taylor B. Who else has a question this morning for our panelists? Star one to unmute. This is Barbara E. Can you hear me? Yes, I do hear you, Barbara E. Thank you so much to our panelists. They were just wonderful. And this is a general question to anyone who wants to respond. When I made a list of my red light foods, everything was on them. I can't say I'm addicted to sugar, flour, wheat, everything from chewable phasing to cough drops. If my mind puts me in a bad space, I can eat compulsively. That being said, I have been abstinent for 20 years, and I am so grateful for that but I've tried 
and am trying to enlarge my spiritual life now by listening to this vision for you and screwing up my courage to take a sponsor to go again and thoroughly through the big book. But the red light list flummoxes me. There's nothing on a green light food for me. There's nothing as a yellow light food. It's all centered in what I'm willing to do. So that's my question, and I'd appreciate it if anyone felt um, compelled or impelled to give it a thought and answer. Thank you. Hi, it's Melissa C. Please go ahead, Melissa. Hi. You know, that that's like a pretty common question, and I think that's a question I ask myself. But um, what really helped me was, yeah, putting the list down, and when I – when I really looked and examined it on paper and, and was rigorously honest, you know, that is the key, um, I, I had to admit that foods that I got out of bed for in the middle of the night, you know, those were the foods that I put on that list initially. Foods that um, once they're on my plate, I'm immediately thinking there's no way that's enough, Um those were the foods. And, you know, for myself, um, yeah, if I'm into the food, I'm into the food. I can I can overeat, you know, on carrots um, if I don't put a portion of them on my plate, at, you know, at a, at, a, at a cocktail hour, at a buffet, um, at a party table. But, um, but if I have them in a, a measured portion on my plate, I'm not thinking there's no way this is enough. And so that was like one of the first things I kind of um, asked myself, can I put a portion on my plate and think it's enough? And that was the way that it made it really clear for me. You know, I've never gotten out of bed in the middle of the night because there's broccoli downstairs and I can't imagine sleeping with broccoli in my house. You know, I haven't looked at my kid's plate and said, how are they leaving that last piece of broccoli over? But I've done it with French fries on their plate, you know. Um, um, you know, that was really part of my process. I hope that's helpful. Thanks. Thank you, Barbara E., for the question. Who else has a question this morning for our panelists? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Talon. Sammy W. San Diego, may I double dip? I'm not catching either name. My apologies. Talon. Talon? Okay. Yes. Go ahead, Talon. Hi, um, I'm Talon, and I'm recovering compulsive reader. And my question is, practically, in the first few weeks of abstinence, or a few months, while I'm working the steps, um, how do I deal with the restlessness, irritability, and discontentment in those white-knuckling stages? Um, just how do I get through that practically? Um, yeah, that's my question. Thanks. Excellent. Panelists? Anybody experience restlessness, irritability, and discontentment? 
This is Janice. Janice, go ahead, please. Okay. Yes, thank you, Karen. Yeah, that's a very popular question because, I mean, I know from my own experience, you know, oh, I couldn't stand it. I felt like I was going to die. But, you know, the more I stay with my own self, with my own mind, romancing all the things that I'm losing or feeling or whatever, you know, pretty soon I'm going to pick up. So what I do is I try to, you know, read, listen to what people have told me. And uh, that's what the tools are, you know, the, uh, to support me while I am getting uh, recovered with the 12 steps. The support tools only will support me while I'm trying, you know, be, before my, you know, creator removes the obsession. So what I did I don't stay with myself because that's a bad place to be in my mind because my mind will direct me to say, no, this is impossible. Oh, I can't do this. I'm going to die. So I pick up the phone. I talk to other people. I get out of myself. And you'll be surprised how the time goes by till your next meal because that's all I had was till my next meal. And what I can give to them how I can help them because just by me being where I was, because they can remember when, and then they can give me their wonderful ideas. And then I would, sometimes I would, um, that would help me a lot. And then sometimes when I want to do something, I'm going to do it. You know, I would pick up the big book. I would read the big book. I, because the literature, you know, really um, puts something else in my mind instead of my thinking of, you know, poor me, I can't eat, I don't know if I'm going to make it, because I used to look at the clock every hour. I mean, I don't know about you, but in the first time years ago, I used to go, I'm not going to, it's only 10 o'clock, you know, and I ate it at 8. Um, yeah, I'd have to pick up the phone, I'd have to read literature. I'd have to um, listen to a meeting, and what's excellent on the vision for you is our special edition meetings. You can go to the internet, you can start, get concentrates, change your minds, change your thinking, and, and absorb what's being said. Pick any uh, special edition that, that, you, that you like the title of, and get involved in that. Before you know, <laughs> the times goes by. And then you're interested in, uh, you know, and um, you, you'll be ready for lunch. And, of course, you know, if you do have a higher power, and you may not have one, I don't know, um, you just say, oh, please help me, help me, help me, help me, um, and do anything except pick up the food. And you will go through it, you know. You know, my higher power didn't say, oh, I'm going to take you from it. He's going to get me through it. To the other side and you'll be so and you know I never died I'll die if I pick it up but I never died by not eating <laughs> you know I really didn't so I hope that helps you Taylor thank you very much Talon and I believe our final question this morning comes from Jamie W Jamie W. Star 1 to unmute. Jamie W. San Diego, sorry about that.
Isaiah. Thank you, panelists, again. I'm double dipping. But my question is, we we find relationships an issue. We replace food for the relationship. When did uh, any of you find that you were ready for a romantic relationship? I'll pass. All right, we're on to romance. Which panelists would like to respond? Suddenly everyone is shy. Janice, I'm not shy. (laughs) (laughs) Did everybody leave the room? (laughs) Come on, people. Thank you, Janice and Larry. You're next. Oh, Cliff, okay. Okay. I'll go before you, Larry. I'll give you your time, too. Well, you know, when, what do you, I think the question is, when will we, you know, be ready for relationships? Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> First of all, you know, I've been married going on 53 years, and I'm still trying, and I'm recovered, you know, one day at a time, and uh, I'm still trying to be the ideal. I'll never be the ideal wife or mother, but certainly I'm trying. I mean, from one day to the next, <laughs> it changes, it changes. Just the other day, you know, my husband is, is up there, he's 86, and he's, um, you know, losing his hearing and blah, blah, blah. And there I go, you know, uh, criticizing and not being patient and uh, not being tolerant. So it's a lifelong <laughs> problem is relationships. But if you're first, if you're newly abstinent, and you, you're not in a relationship, but you want to get into one, that's another story. I would, not, I would recommend highly that you get recovered first because the man or the woman or whoever you want to get into a relationship will look much different to you when you get recovered. If it's the same one, because you see, a relationship takes a lot of energy. And so doesn't recovery. But, you know, it's recovery first and then relationship. I know a lot of people don't like to do that, but I highly recommend it. And uh, recovery first, relationship, new relationship sex. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Janice. And Cliff, please respond as well. Okay, thank you. And, and thank you very much for the question because... The, the relationships that we have, uh, you know, are our first, you know, first we have to mend our relationship with ourselves and relate, relationship with, with God and with others. And I have been married, uh, thankfully, uh, for 36 years. Um, but but I, I went to a program and it talked about, you know, keep, keep recovery weird that was the, the motto in, in Austin, Texas, is keep Austin weird. And, and for the program, it was to keep recovery weird. And for me, you know, when, when you lose, you know, 190 pounds, and I'm 200 and have been for the last nine years, um, recovery is weird. Relationships change. You know, um, I used to think my wife was the one who needed to change, that, uh, that if only she would do things for me, 
you know, the way I want them to be done, whatever it may be, that, that everything would be fine. And the crazy part about it is that, uh, you know, uh, the longer that I am abstinent, the more beautiful my wife becomes. And, uh, and she didn't change. And it's, it's still a process, you know, even after 10 years, but the process is positive. You know, um, it's a, uh, I did read, I, you know, I experienced something one time with my, uh, my grand sponsor after about uh, uh, seven years of abstinence, he started, you know, having a dark period in his life. And, uh, and then I noticed the same thing in my sponsor after seven years at a dark period in his life. And, um, I started, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I started observing that, uh, you know, Bill W also had a dark period in his life when he had seven years of sobriety. And, uh, so I started asking long timers, you know, what is it, what, what is it about this? And, uh, do I have to go through it? And um, and most long timers that I talked to, frankly, everyone that I talked to said, yes, they did have that period in their life, except for one person. Well, and actually, I had somebody who told me that after seven years, she starts telling her sponsees to go to the Al-Anon um, because it's all about relationships. And the only person who didn't uh, go through a dark period in, in their recovery with somebody who started Al-Anon at the same time as they started OA. You know, that is uh, not trying to crosstalk or, or anything of that nature, uh, but it's all about working on relationships. And I, I do go there and realize that it is a family disease. It's a relationship disease. It pours over into many different areas of my life. And, uh, but it starts with mending the relationship, finding out who I am and what, if you want to call it the inner child or something like that. Uh, but I'm, I'm grateful to have the 12 step program to work in, in other areas as well. So thanks. Thank you very much, Jamie W for the question. And of course, thank you to our seven panelists this morning, Reva P, Rachel W, Cliff C, Melissa C, Janice M. Ginger C. and Sylvia F., thank you for your generous service to all of us today. I'm going to close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.